Grace and peace to you this Palm Sunday from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Baron Mullis, and along with the Reverend Megan Lecluse and our Director of Music, Andrew Sin, I am delighted to welcome everyone to our service of worship for this day. Before we move into the body of the service, let me note two things. The first is that today's worship service will take a different structure from our traditional Sunday worship services in that we will observe both the Liturgy of the Palms and the Liturgy of the Passion in this service. We will also offer something for each day of Holy Week this week. You may consult our website for more details about our offerings. Join me now, if you will, in our responsive call to worship. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
Our first scripture reading comes to us from the Gospel of Mark in the 11th chapter. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who were following, those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Maybe I remember the story so well because of the injury. I'm not a person who deals well with blood or even thinking about bleeding or someone else bleeding. Or maybe I remember the story because of feeling convicted. It was the first service trip that I had been on, and my friend Katie sliced her foot open in the shower pretty badly. Her dad, a doctor, was on the trip with us, and he had her lay on a table while he looked at her foot and got it cleaned up. The pastor of the church where we were staying was there and asked if he could pray over her, and he did. When he finished, Katie's dad said, I half believed your prayer was going to heal her foot. To which the pastor replied, maybe if you had fully believed, it would have. Oof. I mean, trust me, prayer and healing, that all feels beyond my realm of comprehension. I struggle between thinking, that it isn't rational that prayer can lead to healing, seeing the iniquities in application if it can happen. I've known plenty of people who have been prayed for and not physically healed. And also wondering if it sometimes really does happen, and at least wanting to open myself to that possibility. The same if we goes, it applies if we go beyond physical healing, too, to healing us in all the ways that we need it, to healing our world and bringing about justice. 
I may not, and we may not be able to fully comprehend it, but what does it look like to fully believe that Jesus has the power to heal us, to save us? I'm sure I could read more about the history to fully understand the details. I actually imagine that some of you listening to this sermon this morning could inform me of the details. But somewhere along the way, we lost some of what Hosanna really means. I'm not blaming the hymn writers. I like the hymn. But I think about the line we just sang. To whom the lips of children made sweet Hosanna's ring. And I think about how when we are able to gather for worship in person on Palm Sunday, children wave palm branches as we gather. But saying Hosanna isn't the same as saying praise God or praise the Lord. In fact, it's not sweet or something that the children in the text were saying. It was the adults, and they were saying it for a reason. And in the praise is also probably a bit of desperation. When the people gathered as Jesus entered Jerusalem, as they prepared for the Passover, their words referred back to some of the Psalms read during Passover, including Psalm 118, which starting with verse 25 reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Part of what the people were saying to Jesus that day was, save us. The Hebrew for save us is Hoshana, which becomes Hosanna. It is praise in the sense that it is belief that he can save them, that he is the Messiah. But it is not simply praise. There is an ask, maybe even a demand, an expectation. The people gathered want to believe that this is truly the Messiah, the one who can save them. He tells us he will save us. Maybe if we fully believe him, we will be saved. Part of what Jesus has, has offered us is the kingdom of God, not as something that will happen when we die or that will happen with the second coming, but as something here and now, if we help it to be. Reading this scripture this year, one that many of us know relatively well, even if each gospel has its slight variations of the entry into Jerusalem. This year, the interaction around the cult stood out to me. Maybe the house is someone they know or Jesus knows. Maybe it's not. But the disciples walk up, untie, and take the cult. They are indeed asked, what are you doing? And when they say, the Lord needs it and is going to send it back, the people respond, oh, okay, great, help yourself, or something along those lines. It is revealing to me that the first thing I think when I read it is no one had any suspicions about these guys just taking the cult. They just said, sure, take it. 
without making sure these disciple guys were legit? Maybe even here, Jesus is again teaching us a lesson to provide for each other the things we need. Because in the kingdom of God, all are provided for. Maybe Jesus will save us indeed. Not just from sin in the way we often think, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be cleansed. Jesus wanted to save us from ourselves, from the vicious things that we can do to each other, sometimes in the name of God. He wanted to save us from feeling worthless, feeling like we are inherently broken. He wanted us to know we have value in God's eyes and that we have a purpose in God's story. Jesus wanted to save us from systems of oppression and wanted us to see how part of our role as kingdom builders can be to reform or even tear down some of these very systems. He wanted to save us from societies that create insiders and outsiders, when in the kingdom of God we know that everyone belongs at the table. Hosanna, save us, Lord. I imagine the people gathered that day, like ourselves, wanted Jesus to offer a quick fix, or better yet, to take care of it himself. But Jesus offers us an invitation to a better way of life. I think back on my suspicions about the cult and wonder if I am ready to fully follow Jesus' invitation. But I also know that discipleship is a journey, and Jesus does offer forgiveness when I get it wrong, or when I half believe. Maybe Jesus will save us. Maybe if we fully believe, he does. Actually, let's take out the maybe. Let's stop hedging our bets. When we truly and fully believe, Jesus saves us. Amen. God has dealt with us with abundance upon abundance, and we have received freely. So let us now give freely.
Our second reading of scripture comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark. We continue reading in the 15th chapter. We'll begin at the first verse and continue through the 15th. Listen for the word of God as it comes to us this day. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes of the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again, Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will. In a word of prayer, let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I heard a while back about a rather mild-mannered semi-truck driver who stopped into a diner on the side of the road in West Texas. He ordered his chicken fried steak because, honestly, every diner worthy of the name ought to serve a good chicken fried steak, and he had just tucked in to enjoy his meal when three motorcycles roared up to the curb. Two men and a woman dismounted, strutted into the diner with a menacing look on their faces, and fixed their attention on the mild-mannered man sitting eating his meal at the bar. One of them walked up and grabbed his plate of chicken fried steak and said with a testosterone-laced sneer, I'll take that. The patrons of the bar, diner, braced themselves for a fight, but the man simply got up, nodded at his server, paid the bill, and left. Seeking to show off to the customers and the waitstaff, the one man drawled at the other, not much of a man, was he? But his server leaned across the counter and said, Honey, I don't know if he's much of a man, but the one thing I can tell you, he's not much of a driver. He just drove right over three motorcycles. 
sometimes things do not go exactly the way we expect them to. Sometimes things are not as they seem. Holy Week starts off with a bang and ends with something much more like a whimper. And nothing we will see throughout the arc of this week will look like anything we would call strength. Nothing over the course of the narrative will look anything like triumph. Now, we, modern readers, have the advantage of knowing the end of the story before we begin. But for disciples, for Jesus, on Good Friday, uh, there's really nothing they know at that point to give them anything like hope. Now, it all started off so well, or, or so it seemed. But we know things can turn on a dime. Things are not always what they seem. One person's triumph is another's gallows crawl. Strength is a funny thing. How do we define it? Is it physical strength? Perhaps is it wealth? Or maybe we think of military might as strength. If it's military might, there's nothing quite like a parade to show that off. But we know that Jesus has already made a mockery of that. Uh, military parades were, were no different in substance than they are now. The only thing that changes is the technology. Charging war horses, swords, in Jesus' day, enslaved people in tow. However you define it, it's about showing strength, right? But yet, here comes Jesus in a mockery of a military parade, clop, clopping up the street on his donkey. It's just one step up from having someone follow him around, knocking two coconuts together to make the sound of horses' hooves. But Jesus has never really been concerned with traditional displays of power, has he? If anything, Mark's gospel narrative presents a version of Jesus that is, who is profoundly aware of the limitations of finite knowledge, yet nonetheless seeking and preaching a kingdom of God that would exceed whatever his ability to describe it or even to demonstrate it. When Jesus prays that the cup would pass from him, he seems genuinely not to know whether that is a possibility or not. And he is faithful to his calling even then. Especially then. All the way to the cross. But if you're looking for a display of rock-ribbed certainty in the face of coming suffering, there are better places to look than the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God moments in Mark's gospel narrative aren't moments of cataclysmic reordering of the cosmos. No, they're very different. They are moments where the power of touch 
when offered to those who are untouchable, redeems the brokenness of humanity, where the power of presence at a table surrounded by crooked entrepreneurs of the daytime and nighttime businesses says that just by being there, says that nobody, nobody is better than anyone else, not in the kingdom of God. Certainly not, because we offer religious pretense. Kingdom of God moments in Mark's gospel narrative are when some no-name, no-significance little people see what God is doing. They have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, and they lean into it. And in doing that, they emulate the calling of Jesus. So who knows what will happen when the week begins? Certainly not the disciples. Perhaps not even Jesus. Remember, Mark loves irony, where his readers always know more than the characters in the story. So we, the readers, know how this is going to end. We know that Mark ends in ashes and rubble, but that the resurrection is going to drive right over whatever definitions of power and might and strength we're burdened with. Therein lies the sprig of hope. But for them, they knew no such thing. Perhaps it's my decidedly humanist inclinations, but I see in Jesus the fullness of what it is to be human, what it is to live for the other, and in so doing, to thereby work for the redemption of the world, no matter what. No matter what. To the extent that Jesus knows what the week will bring, it is because he is aware what his kingdom preaching will bring. He is aware what reaching out to the outsider will bring. He is aware of what overturning the expectations regarding presence with one another and for one another at table will bring. We're burdened with so many expectations of what we think strength looks like. Perhaps even what we think propriety looks like. And you and I, with all those burdens, are invited to unburden ourselves by taking up the cross of Jesus, even as we may do so in the safety of knowing the outcome, knowing of the resurrection. But you know, even knowing the outcome, I dare say that for most of us, the thought of hauling around a cross isn't much of a display of strength. But the thing about hauling around the cross of Jesus is it doesn't leave our hands free to pick up any other burdens. It doesn't leave our hands available to haul around much of anything else. So why not leave it all this Holy Week? 
Seriously, drop it all. Whatever's, whatever it is that's bothering you, whatever it is that's worrying you, whatever it is that fills you with anxiety, this week, drop it all. And instead, pick up a, a cross. That's the surest way to be near Jesus. What's the problem? Don't you think that you'll have the strength to go all the way to Golgotha with Jesus? None of us will. <coughs> strength is a funny thing. Madeline Lingle said this, I think we are in times of angst, given strength we didn't know we had. So I think we should not undercut ourselves because the strength will come. You see it with athletes. They push and push over the line to win the race. We all have more strength than we know we have. And if we had it all the time, it would shatter us. And so it comes only when we really need it. In the times when we're not particularly suffering, we don't have enough time for God. We're too busy with other things. Then the intense suffering comes, and we can't be busy with other things. And then, she says, God comes into the equation. Help! We should never be afraid of crying out, I need all the help I can get. No, strength is a funny thing. I don't know that most of us think of ourselves as having enough strength to be there with Jesus. Not all the way. Not all the way to Golgotha. But we don't have to. That's the calling of Jesus Christ. To go all the way to Golgotha. Our calling is to pick up our cross and follow him. No, no, we, we, we won't go all the way with him. But that was never where our hope came from in the first place. Not that we will go all the way to Golgotha, but that Jesus did. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We don't have to have the strength to go all the way to Golgotha, because Jesus did. But we do need the strength to confess our shortcomings. So let us join in this responsive psalm of confession. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery, and my bones waste away. I am the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street 
flee from me. I have passed out of my mind like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror all around, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. We have heard God's word. We have confessed our sin. Let us continue our journey into Jerusalem, even to the foot of the cross. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Mm -hmm.